But for the rest of us, uh, let's turn our Bibles this morning to the book of, um, of Hebrews. And while you're turning over there, um, does anyone remember the, um, <clears throat> the cartoon series called Jock? Anyone remember that? No one. <laughs> you're all too polite to say. Um, Jock was actually um, written by, <clears throat> by a guy who, who lived in Hamilton for the last, um, I think, 20-odd um, years of his life. And it, it, it particularly related to the, um, <clears throat> to the rural uh, economy, or the rural, the rural folk. And within a lot of rural publications, there would be a, a Jock cartoon. And so Jock was the farmer. And uh, the, the guy writing it, um, he had a great understanding of, of um, what that means. And, uh, you know, the, he'd have a dog, and the dog's name was Dog, as it was, you know, and, and the horse's name was Horse and stuff like that. But um, anyway, you're probably thinking, what on earth am I on about talking about Jock cartoon? But in the cart particular cartoon I'm thinking of, it depicts Jock, he's standing on the porch of his house, broom in hand. He's obviously just been sweeping the house out. And <clears throat> he's talking to someone going past, maybe it's the neighbour or whatever, and he's saying words to this effect. He says, you know, what's really frustrating is I spend all this time you know, sweeping out the house, getting it all clean, getting everything tidy and ship shape, everything looking good. And then six months later, <laughs> you've got to do the whole thing again. <laughs> and, uh, of course... To some of us, that's quite hilarious. I mean, um, six months, you should see the mess I can make in six minutes. Uh, but as I was, um, it might seem bizarre, as I was sort of thinking about Hebrews and, and, and this chapter 9 that we're into today, for some reason that, that, um, that cartoon came to mind. You mun and you're no doubt wondering what on earth the connection is, but... You know, in life, it's amazing the amount of time we spend just sort of trying to clean up stuff, isn't it? You know, just putting things back in order. Uh, vacuuming or cleaning or restoring or something, you know, just maintaining. Uh, constantly we need to be doing things like that. Um, you know, as we start off with a degree of order and it tends to go into chaos fairly quick, you know, which is kind of completely opposite to the, to the evolution theory. Uh, <clears throat> but we go from order to chaos so fast, and we, we create a mess, and we've got to be cleaning up and putting things right and repairing and rebuilding and whatever the case might be, uh, cleaning, vacuuming, washing, uh, all that stuff, you know, it's, it's, it never, never stops, does it? But what about spiritually? And as we look at this, uh, this chapter, and in particularly, but one of the themes of Hebrews is, is, is the need for a high priest and the need for that priestly system. And, and the, the um, Judaism was very much about having to constantly um, come to the priest and, and have your sins dealt with, basically. And there was no way around that other than through a blood sacrifice. And so, you know, people would be coming all the time. There was, there was national days, of course, like the Passover and so on, but uh, the Day of Atonement and so forth. But, but sin offerings were happening all the time. And constantly a person would have to be, you know, 
realizing that they have they've done wrong that they there's the sin in their life they need to do something about that how do we go about it what do we do well we in, in Judaism you, you would have to deal with that through a sacrifice of some some form and of course many religions Christian sects and so on have capitalized on that and they've capitalized on on the uh, the, the conviction and the conscience of man and well you need to come and you need to see the priest and you need to do this and do that and, and so on and so forth and and of course um, that's what was happening amongst Judaism and constantly as we've seen constantly uh, the sacrifice would be done and and that's what this chapter starts off at speaking about but then there's a difference and that is Jesus you see, Jesus dealt with the sin issue once, and for those who, who will confess, uh, Jesus is the one who has dealt with sin. He's no longer giving sacrifice for sin. Now, in our relationship, uh, we have uh, passages like in, uh, in, in, in 1 John, you know, where we are called to confess our sins. And, and, and Christ is able just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we have that. We don't need to go to a priest or, or some other person. We, we, our, our conscience, our conviction draws us back into relationship with God through Christ. And so we see that the two aspects in this chapter, we see Jesus constantly working on our behalf as a mediator, and we see the old covenant the way it was and looking forward to a new way. And so this chapter really, uh, chapter 9, breaks into two main points. Firstly, it, 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 look at verse 1. It, it starts with the first covenant. And, and we're going to touch on that and, and, and speak about how that was. But when you get down to verse 11, notice how it starts. It says, but Christ. And here's the two points of this chapter. The old way, and then but Christ. Now in the eighth chapter of, of the last chapter of the book of Hebrews... The writer makes mention of the prophecy in Jeremiah where, where God, God said that in those days he was going to make a new covenant with the people. Not like the old covenant which was written on the tablets of stone. He was going to write his law on the fleshly tablets of their hearts. The moving from religion to relationship. There are many people within the religious world who, who they go about the, the tablets of stone side of religion they, they tick the box but what about the heart as we've just sung Jesus reigns in my heart that's the that's the new covenant Jesus is going to write these things on the tables or the tablets of our hearts in the declaration that God is going to make this new covenant it means that the first covenant would be set aside in order that he might establish the new covenant Remember when Jesus took the emblems of the Last Supper, that final Passover, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for the remission of sin, or sins. Now the old covenant had the remission of sins through the offering of sacrifices by the priests and also on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. But God has established a new covenant not written on those tables of stone, but God writes his law on the tablets of our hearts. So the first covenant being set aside that God may bring about this new covenant through Jesus Christ. 
And so we get into chapter 9 and we sort of carry that thought through. Uh, the writer is still talking about the new covenant and that new relationship that we have uh, with God and he's contrasting it to the first covenant that was under the law. So remember the covenant under the law, God said, if they will do them, they shall live by them. The first covenant of the law was, if you will obey me and all of the statutes, I will be your God. And the first covenant was established really on man's obedience and man's faithfulness. But the new covenant is established on God's faithfulness. Isn't that great news? <laughs> That's, that should be a, a real uh, tremendous encouragement to start with. It's established on God's faithfulness. The work that God has done through Jesus Christ, the work that has been done for us. And so the old covenant failed, not because it wasn't good. It came to its, its conclusion. It came to its end. It wasn't because it didn't declare truth. No, it failed because... Really, man was weak, and he did not live by it. But the new covenant established forever is the covenant that is established on God's faithfulness, and indeed God is faithful, isn't he? And so, let's read the first few verses of chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so here is the tabernacle. It's interesting that the, the, the view here is of the tabernacle, not the temple. You know, Solomon's temple was the tremendous one of the wonders of the world. But the tabernacle is really what God, I believe, how he wanted it. And the tabernacle, as you looked at it from the outside, as we went, we've been through those passages in the past, it wasn't a lot to look at. It was covered in, you know, goat skins and stuff, you know, from a distance. There was nothing sort of that spectacular about it. But what was inside? And it was, it was a, a symbol of God's presence. Of course, interesting that, that Solomon, he wanted to really make it grand, and, and so he did. But the, the, here the picture is of the, of the tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary, uh, ordained um, by the old covenant, planned by God, but it was planned for an earthly service. It was, it was a reason and purpose uh, for it to exist. Uh, remember, it was only a tent. It wasn't particularly big, 45 feet long, uh, roughly and 15 feet wide. It was divided into two rooms, as we know. Uh, it was the, the veil, that, that uh, a big heavy curtain that separated the, the, um, the holy place from the holiest of all. And, of course, the furniture that was in there is, is mentioned here, lampstand. Um, <clears throat> middle stem and six branches it stood on the first part, uh, made of gold. Um, the table was, was set in there, uh, made of wood covered in gold. Um, the showbread would be sitting on that, um, <clears throat> 12 loaves of bread. Uh, the sanctuary refers to the first part, and of course um, the, um, the second part, the holiest of all. Uh, there was a golden altar of incense, uh, once again made of wood, covered in gold. Um, and it stood there at the veil before 
the, the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was inside the Holy of Holies. It was a chest, a box made of wood, acacia wood. It was also covered in gold. Inside the Ark, the, the items that are mentioned there, the, the pot that had manna in it and Aaron's rod, the tablets of the covenant. And so all of these pieces of furniture mentioned. There was the mercy seat. It was uh, an ornate lid that was on the ark uh, made with the designs of cherubim upon it and, and the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled on it uh, for the forgiveness of Israel's sins on the Day of Atonement. So once a year that, the high priest would go in there and do that. And so from, the, from, from above, if, if you look down on it and the thought is, well, if, if God's looking down on it from above, he would see the symbols of Israel's sin rebellion and failure, but when the blood of sacrifice was applied to the, to the mercy seat, the sight of all of that, the sin of Israel, was covered by the blood of sacrifice. So there's a lot of, a lot of symbols uh, in all of this, and, and there's a meaning and a purpose for it all. But that was the, the, the practical aspects of uh, that part of the, of the tabernacle and of the Holy of Holies. But the message continues on in the next verse. Now when, things, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services, but into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So remember, he, the, the writer is speaking to the, the Jewish audience. They understand all of this. And his logic and reason to why he's, he's moving through all of this, uh, essentially he's, he's reminding them again how that the old system has been replaced by something that is superior. And so this is all uh, old hat, you might say, to, to the Jewish practice, and, and they understand all of this so well. Uh, the priests would go, uh, appointed that they went daily into the holy place and to perform their various functions, the tending of the lampstand and, and the replacing the showbread and so, so forth. The Holy of Holies, once a year the high priest went in there on that day of atonement and his entrance into that was not for fellowship but only for atonement. First for his own sin, then for the sins of the people. Access to the holiest of holies or the holiest of all was severely restricted. And even when someone could enter, it wasn't necessarily for real fellowship. And in fact, the, the rabbis wrote of how the high priest would not prolong his prayer in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement because it, it might make the people think that he'd been struck down and killed. And when he came out, uh, you know, it was, was tremendous, um, <laughs> perhaps relief. He had emerged safely uh, from what was understood to be the presence of God. So to go in there, the, the, the high priest had to go through a lot of ceremony. Uh, and and if, if there was sin, he would be struck dead. And According to tradition, they would have a rope tied on their leg. And, and uh, if he dropped dead, they'd be pulled back out. You know? So uh, it was pretty serious stuff. Now in this respect, Jesus' work is far greater than the work done on the Day of Atonement. You see, Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient to atone for both the sins we do in ignorance and the sins we know. This word atone, it's easily understood because you just need to, 
to, to separate a couple of letters in there. It means at one. It means to come together. It means to agree. You see, how can sinful man atone for his sin? Uh, well, in, in the system we've just spoken of, it was through the, the, the shedding of, of blood of, an, of an, an animal. But of course, that is now done through Christ, through Jesus. We come together, we're brought into fellowship with God because of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, verse 8, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, or it wasn't yet shown, while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. And so the old had to pass away before the new could be revealed. And, and of course part of the problem was the, the, the tendency on the day which caused the writer to write this letter was that people were being attracted back to the old, back to that which had become obsolete or had a purpose but now moved on to a, a better thing. And so it had a, a purpose and a reason. The word symbolic is, is the word actually that comes from parable and, and the tabernacle itself and all the old covenant represented were suggestive of deeper truths, parables you could say, of the new covenant. It was symbolic, it was looking ahead. The priestly service performed uh, now, which was current at the writer's time, could not make the priests offering those sacrifices perfect and clean in regard to conscience. But he says here, cannot make him who performed the sacrifice or the service perfect in regard to conscience. See, if the cleansing is incomplete for the priest, how much more for the person the priest worked on behalf of? So we see here the, 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 uh, uh, the situation around all of this activity. Uh, you've got a, a sinful priest you know, seeking to firstly get himself... Um, in a right place before God, and, and then to offer sacrifice for those, uh, for the for the rest of the nation. But you see, going through all the motions, couldn't uh, completely purify the conscience. Those thoughts, those things that have happened in the depths of our heart. Fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Now, so the weakness of the priestly service under that old system was its inability to address the need for inner transformation. It was all external. And it was, as I said here, it was imposed until the time of the reformation. The, re the word reformation actually means to straighten thoroughly. Uh, we might say uh, in, 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 in the final wash-up or when, when things finally um, got to the new water. In fact, some translations use that until the new water, until the new covenant, we might say. And so going through those, those aspects, those, uh, you might say, mechanical procedures is external. Whereas Jesus is looking at the heart. The new covenant is about a place of the heart before God. And so the features of the new covenant starts here, look at verse 11, with this first two words, but Christ. 
And let's just stop there for a moment and consider those words if we, if we sort of disconnect them a little bit from the context. Um, we think, but Christ. Bring Jesus into the equation and everything changes. Everything's changed here too. If we bring everything into the view of our life, everything that's going on around us, what does it look like today? Is Jesus part of it? But Jesus. You see, here's where the change is in verse 11. But Jesus, but Christ. We can go on in our lives, but what about with Christ? As I was thinking about this, the words of a song came up. A uh, well-known song, and it's um, <clears throat> you know we we can try to to make sense of things. It can be so com- confusing when it is apart from God. But Christ, what does that mean? Submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. How many testimonies? Might you have heard, how many have I heard that would come down to this one point, but Christ. Life was like this, it looked like this, How this is how it was and, and, and everything else, but Christ. And that was the moment of change. When Christ indeed became Lord and became Saviour. And so I, was, uh, I, I felt the, the, the thoughts behind that were, were summed up in, in the song of, um, of Chuck Gerard's uh, some of you know that, that song very well, talking about the, um, the front seat, back seat driver. And he expresses it like this. He, he says, I was running from my master. I tried out every new thing I could find, but my life was one disaster. And he says, I was sitting in the front seat, trying hard to be the driver, thinking I was making real good time, but always ending up the late arriver. But now I've been trying out the back seat. And I find it's a very great relief. Now I'm riding in the back seat. I'm leaving all the driving to the chief. And so that's just one example of, of how he wrote this, expressed that thought of, but Christ. His life had been like this, but Christ, and that was the change. And so when we come back to the context of this passage, the Old Covenant, we read this, but Christ came as high priest. High priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And so, see, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Jesus, as our high priest, ministers in a superior sanctuary, the very throne room of God, the throne room of heaven. A place greater than anything human hands could make. That's the point that the writer is wanting to make, is that there was something far greater here. But Christ. It's moved from a, a, a physical tent, as it were, as good as that was for the, for the time, it's moved in now into the heavens. 
What was your life like up to that point? But Christ. When we say but Christ, if we have received Christ as Lord and Saviour, that is the change point. And so to, to speak about all of these things, to try and put them into uh, logic, uh, the writer continues on in verse 12, look what he says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who were called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so here, speaking about you know, the, the, the blood of, of goats and calves, that was, that was fine, sufficient for a temporary covering of sin. But only a perfect sacrifice could find or obtain eternal salvation, eternal redemption. The blood of the goat, the blood of the calves, all that stuff was temporary. It would have to be repeated again and again. Jesus' sacrifice was superior in that it was, it was perfect, it was voluntary, and it was motivated by love. God has dealt with man because of love, through love. Jesus went to the cross and he stayed there because of love. Now, if these other imperfect sacrifices were received as, as sufficient by Israel, how much more would they regard the ultimate sufficiency of the perfect sacrifice? And this is how the writer is wanting to sort of balance it. Hey, if, if these sacrifices were okay for a period of time, how much more we have a, is that value of a perfect sacrifice in Christ? speaks here of the ashes of a heifer. It refers to the remains of a, of a burnt offering that was preserved and sprinkled uh, for, for the washing to provide water suitable for the ceremonial cleans, cleansing. Uh, this was a shadow. It was, it was fulfilled and done away with when Jesus offered a perfect cleansing. There is no, no value in, in holy water now. Interesting, there's been a search for the red heifer. If anyone's um, kept abreast with that, that, that was looked upon. Uh, and, and, and a few years ago, they believed that they um, identified that. They had needed the, the perfect the red heifer that they would be able to um, cleanse and, and prepare the utensils for use in the rebuilt temple. Uh, that has now been provided. So uh, once again, the, the Jews are, are looking to the rebuilt temple and to instigate again temple sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to even restore, notice, our damaged conscience. You know, conscience is a tremendous asset, isn't it? Designed by God. God created that. Our conscience, also conviction. God uses both. But, you know, conscience, you, can, you could say, isn't necessarily perfect. Our conscience can be seared. We, we read about that in, in 1 Timothy. The, the, the conscience, have you ever 
You know what it's like when you sear the steak. You know, you've got that sizzling going on and that, that surface is seared. Uh, we can sear our conscience by, by not obeying, but by just sort of blowing it off. And it's, uh, our hearts can become somewhat calloused uh, as another, another form of being seared. Our conscience can also be defiled, as mentioned in, in uh, Titus. And in the next chapter, we'll see that our confidence can even be evil. And so we need cleansing, don't we? We need inner cleansing. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So dead works probably has the thought of, of sin in general, in the sense of, of works that bring death, but it must also speak to the, to the continuation, or we might say the vain continuation of the old covenant sacrifice, which certainly is a dead work. And the very type of thing these discouraged Jewish Christians, they were being tempted to go back to. They were thinking, let's go back to the old way. As the writer is laying these points out, it should become more and more obvious that returning to the old way, returning to the law, was inferior. There was something greater. Sometimes we like to stay in the past because that's kind of where we're comfortable with and, and we, we sort of revert back to things in, in our lives often that, that because we know how it works, we sort of, well, it's too confusing to go forward maybe. Old things become familiar to us, old ways. And I think in, in this case, the old way of the law, the, the, as they followed their, their system, that had become familiar to them. They were thinking and being drawn back to that as they were faced with pressures of life and, and persecutions and struggles and difficulties. How many were saying, well, I didn't really sign up for this, you know, let's go back to the old system where we can go along and, and we can offer a, a lamb or a goat where we can do all those mechanical things and our, uh, we can satisfy that inner desire. Then the writer says this, he is the mediator of the new covenant. So here is Jesus, this is his, his, his ongoing activity now, the mediator, the one who is in between of this new covenant, and it says that it comes about by means of death. And so Jesus works as a mediator. It was fundamentally accomplished, you might say, at his death. The death wasn't the, the end. The death was the beginning as far as that particular aspect goes. His heavenly work of mediation looks back to that sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Jesus' payment on the cross accomplished salvation, or we might use the word redemption, for those under the first covenant. Every sacrifice for sin made in faith under that, uh, the, the old system was, you might say, a bit like an IOU that was cashed at the cross. Everything pointed forward uh, to, the, to the cross, and at, at, the, at the cross, uh, the final payment and full payment was made. To try and highlight this point, the writer says this, for whether, in verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. 
For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. That's an important point. And so this word testament, it says, for a testament is enforced after men are dead. You think, well, how does that work? You see, the testament here, it's in the sense of a last will. A last will and testament. So when you make a will, or if you've been the beneficiary of a will, you know, the first thing, if you make a will, you've got to have this thing about being of sound mind and all that. <laughs> uh, so that might catch a few of us out to start with. But the point being that, you know, your, your will, you make your will, but it doesn't really have any effect until you pop your clogs, you know. And then everyone gathers together and says, well, let's read out the will, and, oh, man, alive. all he left me was his broken-down lawnmower. You know, and, and uh, meanwhile, all, all the gold bars, they go to the, the neighbour, you know. I mean, what's all that about? So it's, none of this comes into, into force until the will, until the, until the person dies, the testator. Uh, until then, it's just a piece of paper with some stuff written on it, hiding in the solicitor's safe or somewhere. You see, Jesus had to die for the testament or the will or the covenant to take full effect. Upon his death, <laughs> the will is revealed or brought into, brought into force, you might say. Remember that the word has been used for covenant is actually that word testament. And so the idea is essentially the same as a covenant except that it is dictated by one party, not negotiated upon by two. When you set out your will, you know, you write your will and, and, and the solicitor, you'll, you'll sign it and, and this is my will. It, it's not something that I'm not going to negotiate with those who are beneficiaries of my will. This is my will. When I'm dead, uh, this will take effect. And this is what happened with Christ. When he, at the point of death, uh, the new covenant came into force. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And so clearly death was necessary to the old covenant. We know that, all those animals that had to die. And virtually every part of the sacrificial system under the law of Moses uh, was touched by blood in some way or another. There was a lot of blood going on as you go through all of the old system. An important principle is stated, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And of course, the word sin is implied there, not actually written. Without the shedding of blood... Some people think that sin is forgiven by different other ways. Well, maybe just by time. You know, one year, two year, five year, ten years down the road, uh, that'll be forgotten about. Is that how sin is dealt with? Or some might think, well, sin is dealt with by good works. So we do enough good works, it'll, it'll uh, you know, offset the bad works and the sin and everything will be fine. Sin, might, maybe it's going to be dealt with by decent lives or simply by death when we die that's it it's all that's it comes to an end there's no more scripture is clear there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood 
Now, of course, the Jews today have a problem with this verse because they don't have a sacrificial system. There's no, no, no uh, sacrifices being given. So instead they use a system of where they reflect on how good, the, the good things I've done. And hopefully they've done enough good to outweigh the bad. But see, there's no sin. There's no, there's no blood um, sacrifice in their system today. That's why uh, the, you know, when, the, when the new temple is built, uh, there will be sacrifices that will come back in. They will revert back um, to this system of sacrifice. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. There is no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. This is the point that writers is wanting to make. The perfect sacrifice is Christ. Therefore, always a great word, isn't it? Verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that all the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place Places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. There's so much in all of that whole passage. There's so many things uh, you could develop. But uh, to just simply go through it, it was acceptable for the copies of the things in the heavens, in the earthly um, tent or or, um, sanctuary, to be purified but with imperfect sacrifice. You see the point here, the imperfect sacrifice all the way through. It was only one perfect, and that was Christ. But the heavenly things themselves could only purify it with the perfect offering. You see the vision, and the point, it's always pointing towards Christ here. Jesus' sacrifice was made on earth, but it is the basis of his continuing work as, as a mediator and, and a high priest in heaven on our behalf, working on our behalf. The writer to the Hebrews proclaims it. He says, now to appear in the presence of God. Notice, for us. It's not hard to believe that Jesus appears in the presence of God, but he appears there for us. That's really quite something, isn't it? That's the work that Christ is doing today. And so when the accuser, (laughs) the enemy, comes against us, Christ is able to say, well, yeah, that guy, he's, he's a bit of a piece of work, but you know what? My blood is sufficient. And Christ is the mediator of that. Not that he should offer himself often, notice. Jesus' ministry for us continues in heaven, but not in the sense of continuing to atone for our sin. His ministry continues for us in intercession and defending us against that accuser of God's people. But it does not continue in the sense that he should offer himself often. His sacrifices once for all and perfectly satisfied God's need, God's holy justice. And of course, this, is a, this passage is, is a real problem to the Roman Catholics. To Catholic practice and theology. 
In the Mass, the Roman Catholic Church desires to repeat, not remember, but to repeat the, the sacrifices of Christ numerable times. This is indefensible scripturally. And it denies the finished work of Christ on the cross. He should not offer himself often. He did it once. If the sacrifice of Jesus was not perfect, then it would have to be continual. It would have to be uh, a constant. It would have to go on and on and on. Imperfect sacrifice must be repeated continually. A perfect one was made once and for all time. To genuinely put away sin, not to cover it as the blood of animals did. The principle of sacrifice explains why the suffering of hell must be eternal for those who reject the work of Christ. If payment is not perfect, then it has to be continual and constant for all eternity. And so the point here being that, well, that, that payment's been made once, that will cover eternity. Now, just as certainly as we die once and then face judgment, so Jesus only had to die once, not repeated, not continually, to bear our sins. Now, it's not the intention of the writer to Hebrews to really discuss the issue of uh, perhaps reincarnation. It's a side issue, but he simply brings up the obvious point that it's appointed for man to die once. That's it. You know, we, we don't, we, we're not recycled. You know, we don't come back as a different life form, uh, it, of course, contrary to many other religions' beliefs. And there are many religions who will obviously endorse that, that, that it's about how good you live your life, and when you die, if you've been good, you'll come back as a higher, a higher station in life, or if you've been bad, you'll come back worse off, and, and you, know, you, you get another, another go at it. But Scripture's really clear. You die once, and then the judgment. It's an indisputable principle. It was not really the point of the writer uh, really to, to make this big deal about reincarnation, but he, he certainly denies it completely here. We do not you know, die and live and die and live in numerable times and eventually get it together. Uh, this life is it, and when we face, then we face judgment. Now this means that there is no second chance beyond the grave. Now is the time to choose Christ. Because when we die, after that comes the judgment. It's important to note that the principle of it is appointed for men to die once. It, it's not necessarily an absolute principle, though, is it? There are some unique exceptions. Remember Enoch? Uh, Elijah? Never died once. Uh, several people in the Bible were raised from the dead. That They died twice. Those taken in the rapture of the church will never die once, yet these unique exceptions do not deny the principle of what's said here. It's a point for men to die once. They are exceptions that prove the rule. Now the focus on Jesus' first coming was to deal with the sin problem through his sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice. But now having dealt with that sin problem perfectly, he comes again apart from sin for the salvation in the sense of, of, of rescue of his people. To those who eagerly wait for him. Are you eagerly awaiting?
It is assumed that all believers will eagerly wait for him. It's a sad case that this assumption doesn't always play out as true. The early church never forgot the hope of the second coming. It resonated in their life. It, it was part of their belief. But for the unbeliever, the second coming perhaps could be a day of terror. A day to be feared. It's a bit like today, you know. There's, there's many people look ahead at the future of the world and, and, and live in some real quite disturbed state. And sure, things can be difficult and will, will get difficult, no doubt, as time goes on. But <clears throat> we look with anticipation to the return of Christ. Now, if you remove God from the equation, we go back to verse 11, but Christ. If there was no but Christ and you're just living little old you uh, in the midst of this big old world, it looks pretty scary. Because what hope is there? But Christ, <laughs> that is the hope that we have. You see, the return of Christ, if in that day Christ comes as a friend, it can only be a day of, of, of anticipation or of hope, a day of glory. But if he comes as a stranger or as one who has been regarded as an enemy, it can only come as a day of judgment. A man may look to the end of things with tremendous expectation or with shuddering terror. What makes the difference? Is how his heart is with Christ. But Christ. I trust that everyone here today, everyone's heart here today, is in that right place with Christ. And then when you, we see the word but Christ, you can say, well, yeah, <laughs> thank goodness. Thank you, Lord, that Christ, you are my Savior. And, and but Christ means something uh, that represents being born again. Eagerly waiting now for his return. But if that thought is troubling you, then consider again those words. But Christ. And Jesus' words to man, hey, come to me. There was always that invitation, come. Come to me, I will give you a rest. As, as God said in the Old Testament, come let us reason together. Your skin, your, your sin, <laughs> not skin, but your sin, it was as scarlet, but it shall be white as snow. That is the work that, of forgiveness that Christ does. And so when we read those words, but Christ, it should be more than just words on a page or, or, or to, to consider how there was a change in the economy back in the, in the day, as it were. It should represent your life. That Yeah, there was a moment in my life when I did receive Christ as Lord and Saviour. And if that hasn't happened, I would trust that, that God will speak to you today to clarify first <clears throat> your position in need of salvation and the one to whom brings salvation. True rest in Christ comes as a result of acknowledging Jesus' sacrifice was everything that was needed. And that's what the, the writer is here going about in, in many different ways. A sacrifice that was needed to reconcile man to God, that, that atonement, that at one meant. Reconcile man to God for everyone who will believe and repent. We live in such a privileged and blessed time. We live in the times of the new covenant. Let us indeed rejoice.
Let us pray. Father, we just do thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that uh, it is through love that you have drawn us into fellowship with you. We see as a symbol uh, the practices of old. And although we may not, uh, they may not be part of our, our culture necessarily here in New Zealand, um, we see the significance through the Jewish nation and, and through Judaism. We see what it means and we see what it means for us today. That it is not through the, the sacrifice of, of animals or any other means. It's not through uh, the sacrifice of, of our own uh, life or what have you. It's not through the, the giving up of anything that we can do. But it is through the blood of Christ that we have the ability to enter into full fellowship with you. Where sin is dealt with and put away. And we can move forward in, in relationship with a holy God. So, Father, as we just reflect on this, as we just conclude in worship, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you comfort and, and uh, confirm? Maybe would you convict where needed? Whatever the case might be, Lord, I pray that each one here uh, would be encouraged to... to uh, to be strengthened, to, to walk, to grow and, and to mature and to those who, who perhaps are feeling under conviction, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I thank you that uh, you deal with us according to your love, not according to our, our works or failure of them, that it is by grace that we're saved. So Lord, as we just reflect on this, may our hearts indeed be stirred. Would you speak now, Lord, even as we, as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we, and just uh, conclude in worship. And, and, and uh, I trust as we've looked at what this passage, you know, there's all sorts of things there. There's, there's Judaism, and it's compared to where is life today? Where, where, where are we at today? But Christ, what does that mean? Uh, I trust that, is, that is a, uh, brings home a meaningful uh, response in our own hearts. But as we sing, as we just uh, allow the, the music around us, as we think of these, uh, the, the passages that we've covered, may God speak to you, each one of you, uh, in a fresh and a new way. Let's all stand, shall we? Mm -hmm.